Connecting for Positive Change. Hello and welcome back to our Industrial Decarbonisation podcast series, highlighting the progress being made towards net zero, and in particular, the Industrial Energy Transformation Fund provided by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. My name is Jenny McDonnell, and the podcast series is brought to you today by Innovate UK's KTN. The purpose of this podcast series is to encourage the permanent deployment of industrial energy efficiency and decarbonisation technologies with support from the IETF fund. The fund is providing capital investment to industrial sites in England, Wales and Northern Ireland to help them to reduce the energy demand and the carbon emissions associated with their industrial processes, which can be very energy intensive. A link to the competition guidance for this fund can be found on the KTN website through the link in the description below, and you can sign up to receive newsletters and updates on the IETF funding there too. You'll also find links to earlier episodes of this podcast series. So the first podcast discussed the policies and standards that are encouraging industrial decarbonisation. And in the second podcast, we spoke to some of the industrial sites about what they are doing to reach net zero. For today's podcast, we're looking at how delivery partners could help to advise industrial sites on how to reduce their energy demand and carbon emissions. And I'm very pleased to say we have joining me today for our third and final podcast, Richard Pyatt from CR Plus and Animes Gosh from Enviria. So hello to you both. Would you like to introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about the role you have within your organisation? Hi, um, I'm the Managing Director at Enviria and what we look at is a full turnkey solution for clients, right from um, conceptualization, feasibility, measurements, and execution of projects to help clients with their turnkey solution for energy reduction and carbon reduction with the verification at the end through to past 2060. That's great. Thanks very much, Animesh. And Richard? Hi, Jenny. Thanks very much for inviting me onto the podcast. So I'm Richard, um, I'm Director of Energy and Engineering Consultancy CR Plus Limited. Um, we undertake projects um, and surveys on industrial sites across the country. I've been with CR Plus for 15 years and in that time I've undertaken a raft of different projects focused not just on energy reduction but also on things like operational improvements such as speeding up production processes, improving quality, solving maintenance problems. And we do this across a range of industry, focusing primarily on foundation industries, but we also work with lighter manufacturing um, projects, not solely about energy. We uh, recently completed an interesting recycled water project that uh, reduced water-based emissions and delivered some energy and consumable savings. And during the last two to three years, CR Plus has um, grown in supporting the industrial cluster decarbonisation. We're currently the lead partner on SWIC, the South Wales Industrial Cluster Planning Project. And we're a technical partner on repairing the black country which is the west midlands based industrial cluster planning project which i lead for and within these we're looking at all sorts of innovative concepts including electrification hydrogen e-methanol small-scale carbon capture utilization amongst many others and importantly we're trying to explore clean growth and reshoring of industry via local symbiotic energy and materials hubs and trying to bring in the circular economy aspects to um, industrial decarbonization well, thank you both very much for coming along to share your experience of the ITF with us. 
Um, let's get started by setting the scene for our listeners. So Animesh, could you explain the importance of industrial decarbonisation to the industrial sectors? Is it simply a matter of being the right thing to do, or is it more of a fundamental need to allow them, their businesses to survive and grow? Um, I would say it's both, really. It's not one or the other kind of thing. Um, companies, as they evolve, should be taking the right steps, predominantly from an environmental perspective, as part of decarbonation, decarbonization um, for the benefit of everybody. Um, However, it, there's a fundamental step as well, which you've highlighted, and that should be there to actually promote the energy reduction and the decarbonisation initiatives and the successes of the clients and, and the um, industry sectors. And, and this should be done for the benefit of their clients and their customer base. So people can see that their products are actually uh, of a lower carbon content or net zero. I believe there is a government strategy on this, but... Uh, what we look at as part of the decarbonisation strategy is what is the client's vision? Where do they want to go? And at Inveria, what we do is then we build that. So we, we meet the, the greener future requirements for the client and, and their manufacturing processes and products. What we do is we work with the clients and we actually develop a very robust decarbonization strategy, a roadmap, if you will, that is achievable. It's not just a hypothetical one that, yes, we'll meet net zero, but it's the path to getting to net zero with KPIs throughout between now and 2050 or 2030, depending on what can and can't be done on that specific site for that client. Mm. Um, a, a lot of the strategy is based on our engineers going in with their experience onto the sites and actually doing a high level of measurements and verifications and actually see what the carbon performance is of the client and how we would start to reduce that. As we go through that process with the client, we then um, measure it in accordance with PASS 2060, which is a, a BSI specification for demonstrating carbon neutrality. So it's a very public document. You can add it to your account. And it also allows the client to transparently see where they're going and what they're doing and how they're achieving things. T typically with the strategy, um, we look at the carbon pricing as a tool uh, for the accounts. So we can compare against how much is that carbon costing you you're producing that carbon and how would that equate to if you invest in projects to reduce that carbon so it's it's evaluating that for the client um, we help the clients work in in producing policies and frameworks so part of that is fuel switching in the first instance in terms of changing from fossil fuels to low carbon alternatives and we look at not just switch by the provider but also we look at hydrogen electricity generation biomass systems all generations of low carbon alternatives in in in, in sort of reducing the fossil fuel part of it so thanks, Animesh. I know that many sites need help to understand where their energy is being used and where their carbon emissions are being generated as a first step before they apply into the IETF. So that's good to hear that you're able to offer that support. Um, Richard, I know you have worked with many industrial sites, supporting them to understand how they can reach their net zero carbon goals. Could you offer some advice to our listeners on how to approach industrial decarbonisation and where would you start? 
Yeah, I mean, first thing to say is I, I agree entirely with um, what Animesh just said there. I mean, we, we would always aim to start at a high level. Industrial decarbonisation isn't just a problem for engineers. It's a problem. It's an economic problem, a political problem, an environmental problem. So we'd always advise by starting with the questions to the business. What's your strategy? Where do you want to take the business? What options are there for you to exploit? What risks do you foresee needing mitigation? Do you have, for example, uh, major assets or plant that are on a replacement cycle you've got coming up? Um, and also what's becoming more important at the moment is to start to look more strategically and understand what's happening outside of your boundary, um, both in terms of infrastructure for energy, but in terms of um, growth and use of land, because um, that can play an important part into the decisions that you might make. Um, so once that's better understood, at that point, then specific projects can start to be conceptualized in line with those strategies and where you want to take the business. There should always be a clear business case. Um, obvious, no business really would invest in something that doesn't have some form of return. However, the, the business cases will be wider than just a simple um, energy payback. So say you're a, you're a tier one um, supplier to supermarkets, you'll be coming under increasing pressure to demonstrate your decarbonisation and wider sustainability plans. You might have competitors entering the market. Um, uh, the, We've got to watch out for market distortion at the moment because um, the way that decarbonisation is sort of evolving, you've got this um, cluster approach where there's a focus on carbon capture, storage and hydrogen generation, um, starting with the track one clusters up in the northeast and west of the country. Um, so being aware of things like that can, can come into your, your thinking. Um, what I like about IETF is it doesn't have a, a regional bias and offers distributed sites and the opportunity to do something now. So sort of create their own destiny, if you like. And I've seen some neat examples of, of on-site um, fuel switching, for example, um, where remote sites can actually start to do something rather than sit back and say, well, I've got to wait until infrastructure does something for me. Um, within the industrial decarbonisation clusters work that I mentioned with South Wales and, and the Black Country, we're promoting a, what we call a five steps of decarbonisation, sort of a, a hierarchy, where we've got resource and energy efficiency first, um, then fuel switching, then on-site generation and smart networks, then carbon capture utilisation, and finally carbon capture storage. It's important to distinguish between those last two because, um, again, coming to, back to policy, there's, there's sequestration or storage of CO2 from industry in the, in the geological stores offshore, but there's some neat utilisation opportunities at smaller scale as well that are now starting to emerge. So as I said, we, we placed efficiency at the top, which is which is always is always going to be the case. Um, some examples in the Midlands recently where there's sort of 50 to 80% efficiency improvements um, on the site. So go at that first before you start saying, how can I change my gas to hydrogen, for example? Um, we did a study in the South Wales region for the National Grid Sponsored Zero 2050 project. And we came up with a from from the sample industry mix that were, that were in, involved. We came up with a nine to eighteen percent thermal efficiency reduction opportunity and a four to twelve percent electrical efficiency reduction. And as I've said, there'll be there'll be all sorts of um, um, other examples below and above that, depending on their specific situation and historical levels of investment. For example, mm. efficiencies come into sharp focus recently, of course, with the volatile and high energy prices. Um, a number of projects. That, projects that we've put on the table for people in the last decade that have been parked are now um, coming back coming back up to the top um, unsurprisingly um, so going beyond the, the efficiency I mentioned fuel switching okay on-site generation might be something that people might look at before fuel switching if it's a solar PV for example but when it comes to fuel switching um, something we've 
started to work on is is the the fact almost that there's a skills and resources challenge there just aren't the there's not the, the resource the people to actually work on the industrial demand side to actually implement a fuel switching solution so it's one thing for policy for example to look at hydrogen supply so generation and supply but it's a totally different thing to then say how am i going to apply this and use it on my process particularly if it's like a direct fired process like a like a furnace i've mentioned it already but yeah advising businesses more and more to understand that the sort of strategic infrastructural challenges um, that are going on outside of their boundary is becoming more and more important and that's where we found that we're we're sort of now helping that more that interaction with the um, with the network operators like for gas and electricity um, and, and linking to, to policy. And I generally just advise just to sort of look wider than your, than your boundary in terms of you speak to your trade associations and, and, and others within your sector and a bit of promotion, Jenny, um, the likes of the KTN. There's, there's lots of useful resources and learnings from what others are doing and what's actually going on out there in a, in a time that's that's there's so much change happening it can be very hard to keep up so that'd be my um, sort of overview advice really well thanks very much for the plug richard uh we absolutely right we are here to help at ktn so that is um it's really about finding time to understand their energy demand that can be challenging for those smaller sites and it's really good to hear that there are consultants like yourself and like Invaria who can help with that so obviously this podcast series is promoting the capital investment funding that's available from the IETF. Animesh, I was wondering if you could give a few examples of the types of technology that can deliver those energy and carbon savings for industrial sites. Can you share an example of an IETF project that Inveria has been uh, supporting? Sure. Um... As I think we've, we've, we've all discussed, before we do start with any of the projects, first we'll obviously undertake the surveys on the site, and, and then we look for the optimization approach first through their engineers with, with their technical expertise and their you know, experience in the field to do the more simple aspects of what's needed before we move on to the projects, because that can always, it's a holistic view, otherwise we could move down the project where it might be an overkill, where we should do the optimization first and hit the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Um, in addition to that, we always work on the on the past 2060s, the scope one, the scope two, and, and, and we work with the clients through workshops, tutorials, to actually understand what is it that they want to achieve. It's similar to what Richard has highlighted as well. What does the client want to achieve before we go down the IETF grants and the projects so we know exactly what we can apply for and what we can do? And predominantly, it's to do with scope one that we focus as the direct users or the issues on the site kind of thing towards the projects. Yeah. before we start that, even before we look at the ITF grants or anything, we'll submit on our own platform, we'll analyze the half hourly data on specific plant and equipment, and, and we'll look at the typical things such as the ovens, the furnaces, um, the ID ratings on motors, pumps, uh, compressed air systems if they're being utilized, how's the HVAC working, BMS controls, and, and all sorts of things around the plant to see how that best is optimized before we start with any grant work. Then we'll sit with the client and we'll look at bespoke projects. They're not just a generic off the shelf. It has to be bespoke and specific and tailored for the client's facility and their demands and requirements for decarbonization and energy savings. Once we've got 
into that kind of stage, then we can look at the actual projects that comply with the IETF grants and where that um, works. So there's no point looking at a project that there is no grant availability for kind of thing. So, yeah. so we look at it on that perspective. And, and these range from heat transfer systems, reutilization of dissipated energies through regeneration. We'll look at solar and wind. I, I understand they're not part of the grant aspects, but so we, we look at a range and then we say to the client, with these particular projects, you can go towards uh, the grant and it's viable and it's worth pursuing. So, cause it takes that time and effort and we want to be able to make sure that there is that probability of being able to attain it. So with respect to lots of the projects, we'll look at biogas, carbon offsets, you know, tree planting and other things that the client can do for carbon offset. And then on the grant basis, we've actually successfully completed quite a lot of projects with various clients uh, with IETF grants. So thanks for that. So with some of the ITF uh, grants that we've successfully been awarded, um, one of them has been to do with specific submetering with artificial intelligence that focuses on process optimization and energy saving. Um, and that's been very successful in actually highlighting the energy savings that can be done specifically for a grant project. Other projects we've looked at are high efficiency motors, where the client wasn't fully aware of how much energy it was costing on a equivalent motor. So these have been highlighted and changed through. We've looked at uh, for the food industry clients, ovens and their burners, how they operate, how they're used, and grants been available in terms of those feasibilities for execution. Uh, other areas we've looked at is battery charging as well. Um, not necessarily new batteries, but also how the battery is being charged, how old is it, how is it working efficiently, what is it charging, um, when is it charging as well based on tariffs. So these have been very good projects that have all saved the respective clients substantial um, savings and reduce their carbons kind of thing. In addition to that, we've also been applying for other clients um, grants, which um, I believe are to be awarded. I think they're just going through due diligence at the moment. And this is more to do with biomass systems and bioenergy systems on a client site specifically to generate their own um, energy as well. So this is a really good step for those particular clients kind of thing. Well, thanks for that, Animash. It just shows some of the great examples and, and a huge range of technology that can be deployed with IETF support. And Richard, would you also like to share an example of an IETF project that uh, CR Plus has supported? Yeah, OK, I've got um, an example of a feasibility from phase one, an example of an energy efficiency deployment um, from phase one. So um, the feasibility was... Um, um, with a company, um, a site called First Steel, a subsidiary of, of William King, um, a metal service centre based in the West Midlands. Um, their process is a coil coating. So the main, the main energy use is natural gas into ovens and a thermal oxidizer. So our involvement began with uh, an energy survey, I suppose, that, that identified fairly significant potential for reduction based on control and based on heat recovery. So when the IETF came along, um, it gave the opportunity for the feasibility because you've got um, the situation of um, processes. This is, this is quite common processes that you can't just go and get all of the nice up-to-date clean information from, from drawings and data. You need to understand some of the nuances of, of the line and the nuances of um, how, how things have operated and how they've evolved over time as well. Mm -hmm. So the ITF study, um, uh, the feasibility study, 
um, allows us as, as a as a as a subcontractor within that uh, within that work, then working with the actual site themselves to um, conduct like a lot of uh, like risk and opportunity type exercises, bringing a lot of resource from the actual um, plant themselves, the operators, maintenance, um, technical um, people, to actually bring out some of the some of the information that would otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't have necessarily been aware of before you then go and specify new equipment. And we were also enabled to conduct a lot of measurements. So um, ourselves, we did a lot of the um, airflow, um, um, PTO measurements for flow, temperature, pressure, to actually um, model and, and, and put the system into different conditions and see what the actual improvements, what the changes were, um, which would then feed into helping specification. So it was a successful study completed earlier this year. The, the outcomes then were a phase one to actually go and implement uh, some quick win control-based um, improvements based on turndown, which we're actually, one of my colleagues is helping them do um, in July and August this year. So that should get sort of somewhere towards 10% um, reduction um, just from that uh, quick win step. Then a phase two the, um, um, is about a bigger chunk of recovery from a heat recovery back to the process. Um, and that's then hopefully um, um, be going to go into ITF for, for deployment as a follow-on. Um, to then do that project next year and then that tees up for a phase three which would be some residual heat recovery then to things like space heating um, some some uh, product product um, um, environmental heating so avoiding condensation of some of the products um, and things like that which the ultimate goal is to get a, i said earlier that energy efficiency can have a, a huge range the, the potential here is about an 80 percent reduction in the natural gas um, gas use on site just from those energy efficiency measures um the deployment example is with a, a large steelworks um down in south wales then um sales uh, manufacturing they they um process scrap steel uh, in a electric arc furnace and then that melted cast um, billet then is used to make construction products um, like um, steel sections and rebar um, so they've got a project um, underway ongoing to put in a, a static variable compensator that effectively balances out some of the, um, the fluctuating reactive power and load associated with the arc furnace. And the energy efficiency comes from the, um, the, the production um, related sort of efficiency of how much time it takes to melt the steel. So it improves that, that use of that electricity in the melting process fundamentally. Um, we, we've been helping that one, as, although the former we were more the technical um, expert on site and undertaking that all that work we're, we're undertaking more of a, a project and delivery support role where we're interacting with the um the technical experts and the um particularly the main technology provider there and, and overcoming challenges like for example there was a challenge around locating of the equipment that, that had to be solved so we were involved in in that sort of thing it's not always a, a technical energy related problem when it comes to deployment of, um, of projects it's it's a good one. I mean, it helps with local distribution and transmission as well. I mean, obviously, if we're going to electrify industry plus other sectors, then there's going to be an infrastructure challenge around that to have, actually have the capacity to supply that extra um, that extra headroom. And um, what we're hoping for then is to focus next on the decarbonisation of the, the thermal processes because they've got a, um, a you know significant gas use in the reheating of the um, of the billets. So, and we're hoping that. We can then start to focus on that next, which then could involve hydrogen, possibly electrolytic, hence the potential need for um, electro, uh, potential extra, extra electricity in the region there. 
And finally, a question for you both. Do you think the policies and support being provided by government for industrial decarbonisation is hitting the mark? From your discussions with the different manufacturing sectors, are you getting the sense that it's helping them to reach net zero carbon? Or in your opinion, is there more that could be done to support them? Richard, would you like to go first on that one? Yeah, um, the main challenge is always going to be integration of policy and action. I think it's a, whether it's a fact or whether it's a, an opinion that net zero is complex. So trying to oversimplify it often can lead to sort of putting policy into, into distinct boxes and then you have an intended consequence, unintended uh, bad policy, but also you could have distortion of markets and, and competition. Um, like I said, with the industrial decarbonisation of clusters, you're going to have opportunity for those in certain parts of the country that isn't, isn't then an opportunity for others. Um, so that's always going to be a, a, a tricky one. There's, a, there's also a chicken and egg dilemma when it comes to the alternatives for fossil fuels. Mm. Um, do, you, do you ask the end users what's best for your process? Is it you know, electrification, um, an alternative gas such as hydrogen? There's other, there's other options, of course. Um, that would seem the best way around, but then, then it comes back to, but okay, our process, it's not um, cost-effective to electrify or um, we don't have that infrastructure, but equally um, our process would work well with a switch to hydrogen. But again, same, same challenges. Um, the reverse is that you almost let policy lead and then end users have to react to those changes, which is wouldn't normally be the best way around, but it seems to be the only option for um, um, for some. Hence, maybe their best position is to focus on um, on efficiency first. In terms of grant support, the um, I'd say that the breadth and scope of the IETF has has been generally really well well received. A lot of positive feedback. Um, it's allowed people to sort of actually look at things that they otherwise might have just sat and waited on and um, to just almost see what happens um, and it's allowed projects that were sort of just too far outside of that investable range to then be to then be um, progressed um, we have had feedback on smaller companies with maybe less resource in-house in smaller capital projects that have struggled to utilize the fund due to the complexity of the scheme, the minimum grant threshold, that sort of thing. Um, timing of support is always crucial. So businesses often have the capital approval systems and it can be mismatched to actually assign and agree their match funding in line with the windows of bids. Um, seems to be an element of luck over judgment sometimes there. Policy is helping to support that, I'd say. It's, it's slowly accepting and, and recognising that to try and support that sort of thing. Ananimesh, are you hearing the same sort of positive feedback from industrial sites? Is the capital investment working or would maybe tax incentives or some other form of support be of interest to the, the sites you've been talking to? Sure. Um, yeah, and Richard's mentioned a lot of valid points there, which he's absolutely right on. And, and I think in agreement that yes that the policy is leading the way because it's directing companies into what they have to achieve otherwise as we've said it takes longer because it's not an urgency so, so the policies yeah. do help in that respect i think with the um the, the grant availabilities these have been very positively um taken on board by companies but a lot of the time they haven't always been fully aware of it or if they have been aware they found that it's quite a lengthy process or a technical process and actually 
having to do the feasibility to be able to apply for the grant so it's not just as simple as apply the grant you have to do a level of energy feasibility first to, to get uh, like the, the, the energy modeling correct yes, yes without that yes without yeah. that you can't really fill the grant grant application so yeah. a lot of companies are, are stuck there in the first instance in terms of i don't know what i'm applying for and i yeah. don't know how to apply for it so we, we we try and sit down with them when we try and as we mentioned before the processes of what they can and can't do and how we achieve the feasibilities first so yeah. that's been um really good um I think I think the other key things is it's quite specific in terms of, for example, the SIC codes or the the, the areas that it, it, I don't know. It's mainly industrial sectors, but we've come across a lot of clients, mainly say um, site hotels or leisure facilities, large facilities where they will have the cooking, they will have the heating, they will have the cooling, all the same things you're having on a manufacturing site, but done on the leisure site, and they they're struggling to understand they could get grants or they they do fall into the categories uh, uh, but they don't meet the sick code requirements so unless there's other grants that we don't know about there's there's that area where they also want to become net zero but can't afford the capex kind of thing um what we found is that the grant has helped where we've executed them the clients have been really appreciative of the itf funding that they received because i think without that in a lot of cases the justification to even do the feasibility seemed quite high um so with that itf funding knowing that it will lead to the execution going forward it's been a very positive approach. But I think, as Richard has said, there is a complexity to getting to net zero because it's not the same for every client. Um, they have a lot of factors to consider where they sit within the market, competitiveness, the cost of doing this, the timescales associated with it. So these all have an impact kind of thing. Yeah. And we do speak to a lot of manufacturers and, and they just fall beneath the thresholds, especially the feasibilities or even some of the executions. Um, and that, that's a little bit unfortunate at the stage. So if there's an opportunity to broaden that slightly, I think that there's a there's a larger range of companies just below the threshold mm -hmm. who could would benefit with the carbon reduction uh, grants as well. So you're talking about the minimum grant threshold? Minimum, yes, the thresholds. Yeah. I think when we put the projects together, they sometimes they just fall under the thresholds. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's quite disappointing that there's an opportunity here. Yeah. They're just not expensive enough, which is not the way we want to work, um, yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, so those are some of the areas. And like I said, um, there are other areas outside direct manufacturing who undertake similar plant and equipment and energy generation which i think are worth considering as well you know um yeah, and that's it's good feedback yeah so just to be clear the the scope of the IETF for our listeners um to be eligible to lead one of these projects you do have to have an eligible standard industrial classification code as animesh mentioned and that tends to be the manufacturing sectors mining and quarrying recycling of materials like metal and data centers so unfortunately yes mm. the, the retail and leisure centers mm. are, are, are not eligible to apply to the fund but it's good feedback to receive so if those projects are out there we will feed that back to bays um, uh, to help them to structure new funds so thank you both very much for that uh, very constructive ideas in there 
Unfortunately, I need to bring that discussion to a close now, um, but thank you so much to both Richard and Animesh. It's been great to have you with us today and learn about some of the progress that's being made in industrial decarbonisation in the UK. Thank you to everyone for listening. Any links mentioned today, um, such as the guidance for the ITF fund and uh, newsletters for the KTM website, they've been added to the description below. So don't forget to sign up and receive those updates on the IETF. We hope that you found the Industrial Decarbonisation podcast informative, and we hope it's encouraged you to take advantage of the government funding that is available this year. So thanks again for listening and goodbye.